You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 107. This episode is brought to you by listeners just like you, who have chosen to support the show over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar, where their support gains them access to special monthly Patreon-exclusive episodes, where we take deep dives into topics that do not make the cut for the main episodes. Head over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to check it out. Last episode, I said we would be focusing on the food situation in the Central Powers this week, but push came to shove, and it turns out that I have more to say about Germany than I expected. Therefore, this episode will be about just the food situation in Germany during the war. There's probably more written about food in Germany between 1914 and 1919 than any other country in Europe during this time period by probably a pretty wide margin. There's a very good reason for this, which is that outside of maybe Russia, it was the country most affected by food shortages during the war, and also the one most affected by the actions specifically taken by their enemies, namely the British blockade. These facts, just plus the general role that Germany plays in any work on the war, is why so much has been written about food in the country. We are going to take a look at Germany's food crisis step by step, by looking at the pre-war situation, then what happened in the first two years of the war leading up to the turnip winter of 1916 to 1917, which is when things really go bad. Then we will discuss the last year of the war, and talk about the overall effects of the food shortages in the country during the war. Unfortunately for the people of Germany, the problems did not end in 1918 with the armistice, but instead continued until the signing of the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, as the British continued their blockade until that date, which meant that the famine in Germany also continued until that date. The issues with food and the other issues on the German home front are critical to understanding how the war ended and critical to understanding the situation in Germany in the post-war period, really all the way up to 1933, which is my way of saying that this stuff is important and everyone should pay attention. In the decades before the war, Germany had made some efforts to be as independent as possible when it came to food. This manifested in policies such as high tariffs on imports, which made locally grown food cheaper than importing it. However, this was not completely successful, and by 1914, domestically produced food only made up for about 80% of consumption. This seems like a pretty good number, and a number that could have gotten them through the war. There were two main weaknesses, though, that would make it feel far worse in 1914 than just a lacking of 20% of their food supply. The first problem was that to reach these production numbers, German farmers were heavily reliant on artificial fertilizers. And most of the raw materials for these fertilizers had to be imported from elsewhere. And they they were also heavily used in the production of explosives. When the war got going, and as it ramped up, the domestic supply of fertilizer components, especially nitrates, was heavily monopolized by the war industries to the detriment of agriculture. 
The second problem was that the German diet had changed before the war, and preferences in the populations had changed, just sort of the general makeup of German agriculture. There was a huge increase in demand for wheat bread, instead of rye that had been more typical of German bread in earlier times. A large portion of this wheat had to be imported, along with other things like sugar and chocolate and coffee, all of which were playing a larger role in the typical German diet, pushing out domestically produced alternatives. Some of this movement would be reversed uh, during the war, out of sheer necessity, but it did not help morale, and would have other consequences which we will discuss as we move forward. When the war started, a huge number of men were called up, something like 6 million men were called up immediately a quarter of which came from the agricultural industry. This would just increase during the war, and by the end, 60% of the total agricultural workers would be called up to arms. This alone probably would have been enough to cause some food shortages in Germany, but it was just the beginning. In the fall of 1914, shortages began rolling out across Germany sort of unevenly, and because of the British blockade, the first places hit were the ports, none more than Hamburg. Hamburg had been one of the major import cities in Germany, and as soon as the war started, the shipping into the port dropped dramatically, which began to cause a sort of domino effect within the city. Businesses began shutting down, first temporarily and then for good. Thousands of workers in the city lost their jobs. Only after a few weeks, food kitchens were already springing up around the city, supported by the government, and these would range in size from servicing a few hundred to several thousand every single day. Eventually, food kitchens would become a part of normal German life for millions of Germans, and attending kitchens, along with standing in ration lines, were two activities that would become a staple activity. This was out of pride, and a feeling that these kitchens were poor relief, and they didn't need that. However, the number of people needing to use these kitchens would increase constantly over the next five years. And while at the beginning they were only essential for the lower classes, who could not afford their own food, eventually they would be indispensable for all of German society. There was also longer-term problems that would begin right from the beginning of the war, like the reduction in fertilizer imports by about two-thirds, which would happen right when the war started, but would not really be felt until 1916. However, one effect that was felt all over Germany right from the start involved the staple German diet. Bread. War bread, or Kriegsbrot in German, was a mixture in almost all nations during the war. All of, this, all of these had their strange bread formulations that, in, that were changed in some way due to available materials. In Germany, it took on its own special formula. It would become less and less like the pre-war German bread, which was made up of wheat, and by early 1915, the recipe of the typical German bread had been altered drastically. It started out simple, with just 10% potato flour added in. However, the amount of non-wheat flour in the bread over the course of the war would increase, with potato and then turnip flour being used to leaven it out. This all came back to the wheat and rye shortages that were happening, since before the war the amount of imported wheat used in bread had been reduced. The amount of domestic rye making bread might have been able to help solve the problem. However, in the first year of the war, growing more rye was just not an option. This was just how farming worked, and even if they wanted to increase the production of rye to try and make up for the missing wheat, they would not see any return until at least the autumn of 1915. They would also have to switch rye away from the production of animal feed, 
When looking at this from a calorie perspective, this would have been a good trade for the German people. Because while meat is desirable in many respects, the conversion of grain to meat in beef or pork is very low. Basically, it takes a lot of grain to produce a pound of meat when compared to the nutritional value of that grain when it's just flour or bread. So the government took this sensible move and mandated that rye be shifted to bread production. Problem solved, right? Well, sort of. Because now there was a problem of how to feed the animals now that they no longer had rye. The only option was to slaughter a good number of these animals, especially pigs, which could not be moved as readily to a grass-fed diet. This represented millions of animals, with the end result being the number of pigs in Germany halved during the war years, and cattle were also reduced by millions to save on food and produce meat. This slaughter had some short-term positive effects, because it provided a lot of meat for the population, and it freed up rye for the bread, however, it would have drastic long-term ramifications. Later in the war, meat would be very scarce in Germany. And this incentivized farmers to hoard and hide their grain later in the war so that they could grow illicitly grain-fed meat, which they then sold for huge profits on the black market. And this would happen later in the war, when both grain and meat were in shorter supply than at the beginning, making shortages feel even worse than they were, because so much of the available food was feeding only a small fraction of the population. All of these actions that were taking place in Germany the change in the bread composition due to consumer demand before the war, the shift in production of rye uh, before the war because of this, and the move of what was left of the rye production to animal feed, would all force the government to make what seemed like correct decisions. The move of rye back to bread production, the slaughtering of animals, the change in bread composition, were all correct if you, are, if you have one basic assumption and it's true. The war would be short. If the war is over by the end of 1914, like everybody expected, or even if it ended sometime in 1915, these decisions would have been perfect. However, since the war kept dragging on, the long-term consequences that would not have been felt in peacetime resulted in a much worse situation in Germany in later war years. And all of this would result in bread that was very unlike pre-war bread. And even this bread was made up largely of potato and turnip flour, would have to be rationed heavily because there wasn't enough of it. Here is an entry in the American Ambassador's Journal, where he would describe the situation before the entry of America into the war in 1917. Quote, the so-called war bread, the staple food of the population, which was made soon after the commencement of the war, was composed partially of rye and potato flour. It was not at all unpalatable, especially when toasted. And when it was seen that the war would not be as short as the Germans had expected, the bread cards were issued. That is, every Monday morning, each person was given a card which had annexed to it a number of little perforated sections about the size of a quarter of a postage stamp, each marked with 25, 50, or 100. The total of these figures constituted the allowance of each person in grams per week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. 
visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When the war started, the German government, along with taking some of the country-specific uh, actions that we just discussed, also took the same actions as everybody else. This included a public relations campaign to try and preach conservation, and that if everybody did their share of the work, everything would be okay. This was followed by price controls on some staple items like bread and, meal- and milk. This measure was championed right from the beginning by many members of the government, and this put a maximum price on the goods that farmers could sell them for, creating situations where farmers would actually simply refuse to sell some goods for the amount of money that they were being offered. This then increased friction between farmers and city dwellers, which would just increase more with time, and it did not do anything to help increase the supply of food, which no price controls could really assist with. The answer to that problem was thought to be rationing, which would begin with flour in January 1915. Rationing would become such a large part of the government policy that a special office in the German government was created, the War Food Office. This office was created in May 1916 and would be in charge of nationwide food control. Well, sort of nationwide. It only had power in Prussia which meant that the office did not have any power in the other German states like Bavaria, Saxony, and Württemberg. They felt the same problems as Prussia and had their own systems of rationing in place. However, by not having a central authority, the Germans were unable to be as efficient as possible with the food that they did have. The best example of this was the fact that for much of the war, Bavaria refused to export a good amount of its food to the rest of Germany, was being a bit selfish. Rationing would slowly be rolled out for many food items over time, with rationing being put in place for pretty much everything before the end of the war. In theory, this should have helped even out the hardships on the entire population, but theory was very different from a reality in this case. The government did its best, but there are problems when trying to properly ration food that make it almost impossible. In his book Ring of Steel, Alexander Watson discussed how these problems might arise using meat as his example. Quote, butchers received carcasses, which they then trimmed, divided up, and sold to consumers possessing ration cards. If the central authorities were too generous in their allocation, the butcher would have meat left over, which could be sold to favored customers under the counter for prices above the legal maximum. If too little was supplied, the meat would run out before the needs of all customers entitled to buy some had been satisfied. These discrepancies, giving too much or too little to the butchers who could then not give enough or had too much for the people, would cause people to sometimes go hungry, which was not good, but also a short-term problem. The longer-term issue was that a mistake either way would slowly erode public confidence in the government and the rationing system as a whole. If the people at the end of the line did not get food, they did not trust the government to get them food in the future. And if there was a bunch of meat left over that was then sold on the black market for higher prices, people would be left wondering why could they not get more? In both cases, people could easily blame the government for their problems. This situation was exacerbated by the separation of the population based on their occupation, This is essential to keeping the war effort going, but it did not really help the person that was at the bottom of the list and was not getting very much food. Because of these problems, one group that did find their way to the highest tier of rations was the police, 
who were responsible to making sure all the various queues in the cities, all filled with hungry people, were orderly, and they would stay at the top of the list for the entire war. All of these problems that Germany was experiencing, food production, distribution, and consumption, came together during the winter of 1916-1917 to create what would be known as the Turnip Winter. There were several different causes on top of what has already been discussed. In early 1916, the grain from the previous harvest had already been consumed, which made Germany incredibly reliant on potatoes to make up for the food shortfall. There was a shortage of fertilizer and labor during the planting and harvesting seasons of Germany in 1916, which caused problems. These two problems had been present since the start of the war, but they were felt much more strongly in 1916 than in 1915. The autumn was also cold and wet, which set up p conditions that resulted in half of the potato crop being destroyed by fungus. Finally, the winter was very long and very cold, which put strain on Germany's already depleted coal reserves. All of this sort of perfect storm created a situation where the German population could barely find enough to eat because the supply was just not there. The only food that was available was turnips, which were consumed in large numbers, even though they're not exactly the most pleasant thing to rely on. Even with the turnips, most of Germany was barely able to feed themselves or their families, and diseases like rickets were widespread among children who were malnourished. This also set the entire country behind in terms of food supply in a way that made future years even worse. You can imagine it sort of like setting a, an entire country back to zero food reserves when they had already been pulling down the reserves during the war already. And they certainly could not catch back up after this point, so it was not going to get any better. Here is a German woman describing what it was like to live in these conditions. Quote, One of the most terrible of our sufferings was having to sit in the dark. It became dark at four in the winter. It was not light until eight. Even the children could not sleep all the time. One had to amuse them as best one could, fretful and pining as they were from underfeeding. And when they had gone to bed, we were left shivering in the cold, which comes from semi-starvation, and which no additional clothing seems to alleviate, to sit thinking. Thinking. Throughout the war, there was a growing antagonism between the people in the city and the food producers in the countryside. The food shortages were always felt the hardest in the cities, and there was a natural tendency in the cities to believe that the farmers were not doing enough to help them, and might actually be purposefully holding back on supplies. This caused many from the cities to go on trips to the countryside, to try and buy food directly from the farmers, or in the worst of times, try and scrounge something. The purchasing of food from the farmers required a good amount of money, because they could charge high markups, but it but it occurred on a pretty wide scale. Much like in England, there was also a widespread effort for those in urban centers to supplement their diets with food grown in their own gardens and allotments. These efforts, of course, were supported by the government, and there was efforts to facilitate this process. For their part, the farmers were resistant to many of the government initiatives, since almost all of them had negative consequences for them. They did not want the government to limit what they could sell their goods at. They did not want to slaughter their livestock, which was suggested by the government to release rye and pasture for farming. 
The resistance to any livestock slaughtering, which was quite strong right from the beginning, was even worse after the pork slaughter early in the war, which flooded the market with pork, brought down prices, and then once all of it was sold, caused a huge increase, which many farmers missed out on. The farmers were also able to hold back their food for their own usage, before turning their produce over to the government, and because of this, they were often able to hold back a little extra to make, sometimes, a lot of money. In these actions, they were in many ways, they in many ways justified the antagonism from those in the city, since in many cases they were doing exactly what the urban populations feared they were doing. All of the problems just kept getting worse for the German people as the war progressed. By the summer of 1917, rations were down to just a thousand calories a day, which represented an almost 50% decrease from the start of the year and less than half of what the pre-war government considered the minimum required. This was enough to keep people going, but barely. One German woman would say that in 1917 and 1918, the rations were too little to live, but too much to die. While this pain was always felt by the poorest classes of society the worst, even the middle class felt severely pinched, and there was a noticeable reduction in quality of life. Here is Edith Doherty, who was a child living in Berlin during the war. Now, she was the daughter of a well-known German athlete, and therefore strongly in the middle class, maybe even upper middle class before the war started. But here she is during the war. Quote, By and by, a change could be felt. Rationing had steadily reduced our standard of living, though we never actually went without in the early days. There is nothing dramatic about slow starvation. Its effect is upon you before you know, and it can become almost a way of life, something monotonous, something one gets used to like traffic noise. Soon, the quantity and quality of the food at our disposal declined so much that we were always hungry. After all, we were four lively growing children and had no means forgotten the meals we once enjoyed, large slices of good bread, crisp rolls with plenty of fresh butter, and our favorite types of sausages. Cakes, whipped cream, chops, chicken, ham, and lovely puddings became a tantalizing memory. The bread was now almost unedible, like putty made with the addition of potatoes and turnips. It took years before I could look upon a turnip again as a desirable vegetable, because turnips, carrots, and now and then kale was all that could be found in the shops. During my research, I found some pretty wide estimates on how many civilians lost their lives due to the food shortages in Germany during the war. Numbers are hard to determine because it depends on how you count and what you consider as caused by the shortages or not. One estimate after the war put it as many as three-quarters of a million, but other numbers put it at around 300,000. These numbers do not even count those lost during the 1918 flu epidemic, which would hit the weakened populations all over Europe and would hit them very hard after the war. The birth rates in Germany were also halved during the four years, but that could also have other causes. Just to add insult to injury, 1918 would not end the problems. After the armistice was signed in November, the Allied blockade was not removed and instead continued all the way until the treaty was signed at Versailles in 1919. This represented the worst of times for the German people, something that would cause bad memories that would be used by later political leaders. Here is one observer discussing that what they saw during the war. 
Quote, as you go through the schools, stand in the classrooms, watch the children at work, you have the sense of a whole generation stricken by blight. It is revealed in the puckered brows and the lustless, lusterless, uncertain eyes and anemic faces, the bandy legs, the dry, cracked, flabby skins, the swollen abdomens, the universal air of exhaustion. It's a generation who have never known what a sufficiency of food means. For five years, that is for almost the whole life they remember, they have been starved. They were never worse starved than during the nine months blockade that followed the war. They were still starving, a whole nation of children. The fortunate ones die. 50% more infants died in Berlin alone during 1919, a year of peace than in 1913. The rest are starting their life with a physical and mental inefficiency that will make life a burden. The English sickness alone, or called rickets, the result of mainly the post-war blockade, has claimed hundreds of thousands. Tuberculosis in all its variations has swept the child life like a plague. In Leipzig alone, there are 8,000 tuberculosis children. In Cologne, 10,000. In Berlin, 30,000. The mortality among small children has reached 25%. The mortality of older children has gone up 85%, nearly double. In the 115th public school in Berlin, out of 650 children examined, 305 had no proper sleeping space. 370 had no heating in their homes. 341 had not a drop of milk from weekend to weekend. The number of children who have died of tuberculosis and hunger in Germany has reached a million in April 1918. That's a lengthy quote, and there's a lot of information there. But it's important to remember the suffering that was experienced um, on the home fronts all over Europe, um, both before, during, and after the war in this case. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode.